a little bit of a sleepy loss for the Phoenix Suns heading into the All-Star break, but this game against the Clippers did show us one thing about the Suns and their surprising level of depth. We'll dive into that, plus Kevin Durant's introductory press conference on today's episode of Locked on Suns. You are Locked on Suns, your daily Phoenix Suns podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. We are back. This is Locked On Phoenix Suns. We are part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brendan Clean, a credentialed media member covering the Suns for the past six seasons, a writer at suns.com, and the host of the Just Basketball Show wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for making Locked On Suns your first listen here on this Friday to close out your week. Another game in the books, 60 games down, 22 to go. It looks like we will get Kevin Durant back the next time these Suns play. So hit follow or subscribe wherever you're finding this show, including YouTube, to get it in your feed every single Monday through Friday, free, always, and there for you every morning. Today's show, guys, is brought to you by FanDuel, the official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more and visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. 116-107, the Phoenix Suns lose this game. Um, Just a weird one overall, but we're going to dive in as we always do to the moment of the game and the big takeaway from this game. And then lastly, I will give you my thoughts on my experience at the Kevin Durant introductory press conference, although I think many of you may have actually been there, which was part of what was a little unorthodox and a little strange about that experience, but we'll dive into that as well as some thoughts on the buyout market, so a lot to get to, but let's start with the game. The The moment of the game was a little bit hard to pin down because it was one of those games where the Clippers just had like a between 5 and 10 point lead basically all night. <clears throat> Suns didn't really make too big of a run at any point. Every quarter was within five points. Like just, just one of those types of NBA games. But where I go with the, the moment of the game is at the basically six minute mark of the fourth quarter. All right. And what happened at that point is Eric Gordon checked into the game for the Clippers now, you might not remember that Eric Gordon is a Clipper. That's okay. If you if you remembered it when you saw him check in in this game or if you maybe missed this game and you just remembered when I said it, that is totally okay. I think it's only his second appearance in a Clipper jersey since the trade deadline. But uh, 13.7 assists, zero turnovers for him in 26 minutes. He was a plus five in the box score for Los Angeles. And again, when he checks in, I don't even know if he scored the rest of the way. He had one assist from what I'm seeing, and, and that's it. So he didn't make a big impact offensively from that point on. What I am zeroing in on that for is his defense. And in particular, it was against Evan Booker. So Booker had many one-on-one ISO possessions where he tried to get one in on Gordon. He hit a, a 14 foot bank kind of leaner jump shot, you know, floater type thing, a classic book shot right when right when Gordon checked in, but then basically from that point on he has a miss, he has uh, a, a a loose ball foul. 
He has another foul, a turnover forced by Gordon, another foul, misses a three at the very end of the game. So I think Booker had five points the rest of the way, seven points the rest of the way after Gordon checked in. So that is seven of his 19 coming in that final six minutes. Not a terrible showing, but I guess really the point is that check that moment of, of Gordon checking in coincided with about the moment where you started to feel like Devin Booker was going to take over this game. All right, and so the score at that moment, 553, when, when Gordon checks in, it's a seven-point game. Clippers 103, Suns 96. The Clippers went on to have a, a, a quick little spurt four to two run and then again they just never really relinquish the lead they eventually go up 10 with about a minute to go Booker that that was his time he was getting into a little bit of a rhythm in the beginning of the fourth quarter he had some an and one I believe he was just it felt like one of those games I tweeted heading into the fourth quarter the sun should win this game and I think anyone who watched it probably felt that way at about that moment but he didn't, obviously, or they didn't obviously win, and it was a lar- in large part because Booker did not kick it into that second gear, and the reason he didn't is in large part because of Gordon. And so Gordon did have a pretty impactful game. I thought bench scoring was going to potentially be a strength for the Suns in this one. Terrence Ross, who we'll, men- who we'll talk about in more detail in just a moment, did score 16 points, but all in all, the way that Gordon was able to score did make a big impact, but then in the end, his his defense is what makes the the ultimate kind of difference in the game, really. And it's a player we don't think of that way. It's a player we weren't sure would necessarily be able to play up to that standard anymore. Obviously, he was a Suns target for, for multiple seasons, even potentially thought we might end up getting him here this year. Defense wasn't a certainty with him like back in his Rockets days or his that when they were good when Chris was on that team and obviously Harden those that team was was very stout defensively and Gordon was probably their their best wing defender I think you would have to say depending on how you classify PJ Tucker because of his Gordon's strength his just low center of gravity all that stuff he even has a pretty decent wingspan for how tall he is all that showed up against Booker and it made him frustrated. He had five turnovers on the night, five fouls on the night, and he was only 6 of 16 from the field. That wasn't all Gordon. I do think Paul George did a pretty good job on him. I thought that the way that the, the Clippers were trapping and blitzing him was effective on a night where Ayton was just pretty pretty ordinary, 18.6 rebounds, nothing spectacular from Ayton, and then Chris Paul never really went into attack mode. Booker was out of rhythm at the beginning of the game, started really cold, had a decent start to the third quarter, had a decent start to the fourth quarter, and then right when you figure he's going to flip the switch to on, Gordon, uh, of all people, comes into the game, checks him, cools him down, and the Clippers are able to pull away and, and win the game. A big part of this game, as I just mentioned on the Clipper side with Gordon, same with the Suns side. We are continuing to find out what this rotation will look like. Some of that having to do with who's claiming that fifth starter spot. I think you might know where I'm going there. A certain former Minnesota Timberwolf. And we'll talk about Terrence Ross's impact and how the bench is shaking out. My big takeaway of the game next. First, today's show, guys, brought to you by 
The Nissan Aria, the 2023 all-electric Nissan Aria, and Nissan's most electric player of the week is the segment here. We're going to lead beautifully into what I'm about to talk about next here with Josh Akogi, the Nissan most electric player of the week, brought to you by the all-new, all-electric 2023 Nissan Aria. Akogi has been on fire. He has been playing with a crazy level of aggressiveness and confidence playing a ton of minutes. Monty basically said, all right, you are our new Mikhail Bridges, and that includes playing an absurd workload. And Okogi has handled it perfectly, just like the Nissan Aria. He is fiercely elegant, brilliantly fierce. He's electric to watch, just like the Aria, of course, is electric in reality. Look, the 2023 Nissan Aria packs pin you to your seat, power and premium intelligence all in one EV. The all new, all electric 2023 Nissan Aria is the EV for people who love to drive. Shop now, find yours at NissanUSA.com. Okay, so this is going to basically be a, a, a version of the Bench Mob Vibe Check, which you will know as a segment I go to often at the very end of these recap shows. But in this case, that was where my attention was devoted in large parts of this game. Josh Okoge, who I just gave that Nissan award to, 24 points, 5 rebounds, 6 of 12 from the 3-point line, and 3 steals. So... We all talked a lot, and I still believe that we don't necessarily need to think about the filling of that fifth starter or fifth closer spot as a one-for-one comparison to what Mikhail Bridges or Cam Johnson were doing for this team, and more so, what can different how can they play differently, how will they play differently, and how can certain Suns players fill the best role next to what the team will now look like. However, (laughs) Okogi is is doing a pretty incredible job doing things that Mikhail Bridges used to to do when he was here, even things that you would say Torrey Craig does well in terms of crashing the offensive glass, turning defense into offense, cutting and finishing at the basket, these types of, of attributes. And in a way, kind of presenting a pretty traditional fifth guy for a team like this in a way that maybe I'm going back on my on my thought process a little bit of like, okay, not so much who's filling Mikhail Bridges, but what's the best guy to put next to Kevin Durant? Maybe a Kogi's both. I think there's a reasonable case for that. But what he's doing is answering the question and and seizing the moment in a really cool way. And I don't want to jump to conclusions because, again, we haven't seen these players with Kevin Durant. And even though I just said all of that about Okogi doing it in a more traditional way, doing it within the context of how the Suns have played rather than how they will play, and and proving to me that he could be that fifth guy, I do still think you have to see it with Durant. But regardless, he's been... He's just been incredible. He's been confident. I believe he's shooting 40 plus percent from three in February, or at least for the past week or so. Six six of 12 from three. Six threes is by far the most of his career. The previous high was four. This is a player who's gotten more comfortable taking threes off the catch throughout the course of the season. If you remember, he would often have 
kind of like one dribble inside the arc and then gather and step back just to get his rhythm for a three-pointer. He's catching and fluidly releasing like it's no problem. Very exciting stuff. I do think he he has the inside track on a ton of minutes, and if not a closing or starting spot, a, a major spot in this rotation overall. But while that was obviously a huge storyline in this game, my bigger takeaway overall is the bench is suddenly not a weakness. I think you could very easily, and, and I probably would make the case still that the Suns are, um, they're not a completely fully fledged team. If you had a full off season to replace Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson and build a team around Kevin Durant, you probably wouldn't build it this exact way, but they, they're not missing pieces right now. It's not as if they don't have enough guys or they don't have enough total talent or they don't have enough versi- uh, like lineup options, stylistic versatility to compete and provide and have answers for different matchups in the playoffs and on and on. So that was really what I, I got excited about watching this game. Okogi was a huge part of that, which is why I started with him. But you look at what Terrence Ross did. In his first, in his debut tonight, 16 points, four assists, four rebounds. He was actually cold from three. He he really heated up, finishing around the basket and getting into the mid range. He was six of nine on twos tonight. Only one of eight uh, from deep. He didn't have a single turnover, and he played 25 minutes, including a lot of the fourth quarter. Nearly as many minutes as Torrey Craig when it was all said and done. Who who did not have a very good night offensively, at least and. I, I mean, even defensively against Kawhi Leonard, I think the first half was a lot more of Kawhi missing than it necessarily was Craig being a lockdown defender. Um, but either way, Ross stepping into such a major role right away was impressive to see, but also well-earned. This guy is comfortable running a lot of the stuff as an off-ball scorer that the Suns already had in place. You can easily see him taking... Uh, some of the reps and taking some of the sets that maybe even Booker would have run for him, but especially guys like Shamit and Damian Lee, the way that they've been able to thrive, getting open shots off of off-ball screens, spacing the floor, knowing what to do with the ball in their hands to attack a closeout. He's going to fit seamlessly into that stuff, and it's already built into the Suns' offense. So this is not something where they're trying to like incorporate Ross in, in a in an uncomfortable or new type of way. And so I told you guys, I mean, when I when I talked about the signing initially, I basically, you know, uh, I assumed it was going to be mostly a regular season thing. I figured they're not going to disrupt the rotation for this guy, but he's very good. Uh, he's good insurance because I, I still, I mean, it seems like Payne will be back next Friday as well alongside Durant. Shamit maybe not too far after that, but long-term foot injuries are no joke. And so I, I figured it was more so just, you know, insurance for those guys, regular season help. Maybe there's some moments in the playoffs where he can come in and make a difference. But as much as I don't want to overreact to one game, I think Terrence Ross is going to be a really strong fit here. And I think he really will make an impact. I could even see him being in the playoff rotation at least in the early rounds or in the early games of the later rounds, maybe not when push comes to shove and the rotation goes down to eight or nine guys. But 
that that's a, a long way off. Ross will make a lot of impact between now and then. The last note on this, so those are two guys who are really standing out right now who the Suns either didn't have or who were not making this big of an impact in Akogi and Ross. But in general, they just have a lot of different unique players to cycle through at this point. When you remember, too, they are not even playing Darius Baisley right now. I don't know if they ever will. And, and Campaign and Landry Shamit are, are still recovering from injuries. So you just go through and it's like, Okay, so let's say a Kogi starts just for comparison or, you know, uh, hypothetical sake. Tory Craig will be off the bench. TJ Warren, the two centers, Damian Lee, Terrence Ross, Landry Shamit, Cameron Payne, potentially Ish Wainwright, if they escalate and elevate him to a full NBA contract. Maybe one other person, a buyout player who I will talk about to close the show. I'm not saying it's perfect again. I think you would probably want one reliable backup center instead of this two-headed monster that they have. I think you might want a little bit more in terms of wing defense, which you obviously lost a lot with McHale. You would probably want some options there, but just top to bottom, what went, what was at, at one point and for most of the season was a major weakness, I think has flipped to, if not an overwhelming strength, at the very least, a, a talented group of players that can allow Monty Williams to go in a lot of different directions depending on what the matchup or the moment calls for. And this game was an example of that. Monty played 12 guys. I don't know if that was necessarily the best decision overall, but we got to see a lot of different versions and iterations of the, of the lineups. And some of them played pretty well. Like I think the Biombo minutes were pretty solid. I felt like Saban Lee even gave them some good minutes, Terrence Ross, and maybe different nights it'll be different guys. I think Monty will use the rest of this season to tinker and, and experiment a little bit and then settle on a rotation maybe the last week or two of the year and get some games under their belt with what the rotation will really look like. He's talked about nine and a half guys is what he wants to get to. He's not there yet, but I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily either. We'll close out with my takeaways from the Kevin Durant press conference as well as my thoughts on another buyout candidate reportedly available and, and, and getting some interest from the Suns. All of that next. First, today's show brought to you by Bilt Bar. Looking, if you're looking for a delicious treat but don't want all the fat and calories, you've got to try a Bilt Bar. We just are in the beginning of 2023 here. Maybe you have a resolution. Maybe you're using that calendar flip to get on the right track eating healthier. Maybe you've always been that type or you just love delicious treats that have a healthy side of them as well. Built Bar is the answer for you. What makes them so good is, well, for starters, they're covered in 100% chocolate. That's the bottom line. That's the baseline. That's the bar. Then they come in unbelievable flavors, delicious flavors like churro, peanut butter, brownie, coconut, almond, fruity flavors as well, like orange, strawberry, and cherry, whatever you love. Whatever candy bar you love, there's bound to be a one-for-one -one comp on the Built Bar menu. And they keep the macros great. 15 to 20 grams of protein, no more than 150 calories or five grams of sugar. You've been looking at Built.com. You've been having your orders placed there for years if you've been listening to this show. But even better now, they're available at your local Walmart or Sam's Club. You can get a four-bar box at Walmart, 13-bar jumbo box at Sam's Club. Wherever you live, wherever you want to order, Built Bar is there for you. you got to try it if you haven't already. I know many of you have, but take advantage, get another pack, and enjoy.
Okay, closing out the show here with uh, a departure from this loss, 116-107 to of the Clippers, and diving into the probably bigger moment of the day, which was the season ticket holder slash event slash press conference welcoming Kevin Durant to the Valley. Um, look, I actually have a different perspective on this a little bit. There were a lot of people, you know, kind of joking or laughing or raising their eyebrows at the pomp and circumstance, the hoopla around this event. And like, yes, as a thing that was allegedly a press conference, it was a little bit crazy um, to have fans in the building, to have fans like cheering or booing or laughing about different questions that were being asked. It was a very unreal, surreal experience in that regard. But I wasn't, I guess, surprised that the Suns did this. And I also wasn't surprised that it it ended up the way that it did because I know the Suns do a lot of in-person exclusive stuff for season ticket holders. They had something for the 93 reunion. They've had, uh, before every season, they always have a little Q&A session with Tom Leander. They've done, they did the open practice this year with some players and, and staff talking. And... Even in like previous seasons, when they were tanking, they would invite a ton of people to the arena. Uh, I think they even sold tickets for the draft night or the draft lottery night. So Suns fans come out to this stuff, and they really show their support, and they really make noise. So that didn't surprise me necessarily, but still, yes, it was crazy to see. A few highlights from my perspective. The Suns fans that were there booing, the question that was asked about why it didn't work in Brooklyn, I thought was funny. I don't think that was booing Nick Friedle. Like uh, People were trying to make it about him, and by all accounts, I don't think those two have ever had any issues. So if, if you were a Suns fan who booed Nick Friedle, I think you could probably uh, cool it on that. I, I just, come on, the guy, it's a reporter. It doesn't have any problems with Durant. It's more so uh, the Nets side of it, which I do get booing because it's kind of like, well, that's the reason he got here. So maybe let's not dwell too much on that. But I also think another highlight, another highlight on that note is Durant was surprisingly candid about his time in Brooklyn. That was really something that I was kind of surprised by and that stuck with me now a few hours after the uh that event is over, the game is over, and I'm kind of sitting here thinking about it. That That's really stuck with me, the fact that he was able to, that he was kind of open about, hey, like, I didn't really know necessarily the status of things with Kyrie and the, and the Nets front office. He seemed to indicate he was somewhat surprised by the trade requests that Kyrie put together. And he did seem to be pretty, I don't think, sad to leave the Nets in general, but overall, I think remorseful and sort of disappointed that it didn't work out there and very complimentary about the the future that that team has. It feels like he, maybe he's just saying the right thing, saying, saying what's nice, but it, it felt like it was pretty genuine that he understood that it wasn't going to work out to continue to chase championships 
in Brooklyn anymore at the status and place that he is in his career. He is a 34-year-old Hall of Famer who wants to continue to win at a high level. And without Kyrie there, without James Harden there, with Ben Simmons playing so poorly, it just wasn't going to work. But I think he he probably has a lot of respect for people like Jacques Vaughn or some of the, the others in that building, even players who he's seen grow. And that was kind of interesting to me. I know Suns fans might not care about that, but to me that speaks to the... It kind of it kind of circles back and speaks to what I was talking about after Tuesday night's game in terms of the energy and the buzz and the sort of like aura that comes with having Kevin Durant in on your in your organization on whether you're a player who is his teammate or you're just anybody up and down that 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 line you it, it just it's different right and so I do think that relationship that he had with the Nets and the fact that he seems to already be bringing a, a certain level of that to Phoenix in the early days here, I think those things are tied together and, and it does sort of illustrate what what the Suns are getting, right? It, it, it's kind of like Kevin Durant is, yes, a fantastic player, but it does feel like he tends to be bought in. And this is a player who demanded a trade last year, right? And yet, he you hear him talk now, you hear the quotes that he gave during the season, you hear him even sort of like the way that he joked about how the, I think he, he made a joke about how the Nets haven't been on national TV a lot. This year, he was asked about that a, a month or two ago, and he kind of joked like, I think that I might have had something to do with that, right? But like, Everything indicated, especially his overall level of play, which is the bottom line you can't ignore, that he was recommitted to Brooklyn. Like he really was dedicated to seeing this out and felt like the same thing with Golden State. You know, they got all the way to the finals again in his last season, despite the fact that he was, you know, thinking of leaving and the the, the blowout with Draymond and all this history that we've all heard a million times that we don't necessarily know the specifics of, but yet you really can't knock the level of commitment overall in the moment as those seasons played out. When he's committed, he he is committed. And then when he's not, he tries to, to make it work with the people who can help him change his situation. You can take issue with player empowerment and trade demands and all that stuff, but that was a lot of what really spoke to me from this press conference and just the continuation of the public way he's been talking pretty much since the vaccine stuff with Kyrie where the, the Nets situation started to to start to blow up um last but not least i think the quote that that has gone viral that i'm excited about that i'm sure suns fans are excited about too is the the note that he he kind of made about like i appreciate the cheering i appreciate the the applause and the celebration but i don't he kind of said like i don't think i deserve it because i haven't done anything for for you yet you know kind of for this fan base this community he hasn't he knows there's a task at hand in Phoenix and he kind of feels like you got to put the horse before the cart, right? You can't put the cart before the horse and he he wants to kind of show it rather than than just sit there and, and talk about it and soak in the admiration and the applause and the and the love from the fans, which again, one of those things that's that's just the right thing to say and he's a smart guy and of course you're going to say it, but also felt pretty meaningful in that moment as well considering how much uh, adoration was coming from that crowd and for him to kind of tamp it down was 
interesting way to to to, to handle it, and I I think you gotta kind of believe it's genuine when it is maybe not what other people would do, right? Okay. Lastly, quick thoughts on Kevin Love. That is the buyout candidate that I've been hinting at. You probably saw that coming. Brian Winors today connected the Suns to to Love. We obviously know James Jones not only was teammates with with Love for a while in Cleveland, but that they were they seemed to be pretty close. Like there's an Instagram post that has been going around social media again today of Durant, or I'm sorry, of Jones and Love posing with the championship trophy in 2016. It seems like those guys had a had a real relationship. I think Love could serve a purpose here, you know, like the Frank Kaminsky, Dario Saric role as somebody who can play the four or the five, who can, you know, rebound, play physically, probably not going to be much of an impediment defensively, but still has size and then offensively is able to be a connector, a floor spacer, and, uh, you know, a high IQ player. You could see something like that. I just think, look, Monty had a quote on Tuesday pregame when people were asking him about different players, and he basically was like, I'm not going to be able to play everybody. Like He kind of said, you can keep asking me about every player on this roster, whether it's Darius Baisley who's getting DNPs or you know these guys in Payne and Shaman who are about to come back, but the bottom line is all of them are not going to end up being relevant this season because I can't play all of them. He didn't say it in so such blunt terms of the relevant part, but he said that exact thing. And so I do feel like I'm not sure what love at the end of the day does. And in terms of increasing your ceiling or, or insulating you from injury, like if you're to a point where love is a major factor for you, a lot of injuries have probably happened. And so is that player necessarily worth bringing on? And that really is where the Suns have to be thinking about it, right? Because they signed Terrence Ross already. They do have one final open roster spot, but they also have Ish Wayne right now, who after Thursday's game, this Clippers game, he is now out of two-way eligible games. So if he were to stay on a two-way, he would not be able to be active for any more games the rest of the NBA season, and he would not be eligible for the playoffs, which means it's decision time. If you want him to continue to be around, you need to elevate him, and that takes up a normal roster spot instead of just a two-way slot where every NBA team gets two of those. Him and Saban Lee are the two right now. If you elevate him, that go there goes the final roster spot, and then you don't have a, a space for Kevin Love anymore. There are some other options. You could cut someone. Um, I'm not sure if that's smart, especially when you're talking about the luxury tax implications. I'm sure if the Suns had a do-over in hindsight or like in an ideal world, if they could create it, cook it up in the best version, they probably, uh, it would have been nice to have the forewarning and maybe just cut Jock Landale back because his contract was non-guaranteed, if you remember. They could theoretically cut somebody like Darius Baisley. Um, that feel would feel a little jarring. I just don't think the opportunity cost of either not getting Ish Wainwright on a full contract or cutting another guaranteed player to create space for a, a second option to fill that spot like Love, I don't know if what Love would bring is worth all of that. And that's kind of where I come down. Would he be helpful? Would he be useful? Could I see the fit? Yeah, all those things are are obvious to me. But considering the, the dominoes that would fall after that, that's where I start to hesitate. And I probably lean in the direction of it's just not worth it. Between Landale, Durant, Ayton, 
even, I mean, whatever. You just, you're getting enough of the stuff that love does from other places. That's that. All right, that'll wrap us up for the week. Thank you for making Locked On Suns your first listen every single day, Monday through Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, including YouTube. We'll be back Monday with more thoughts, maybe some all-star stuff, but really diving into the Kevin Durant storyline, the Kevin Durant arrival even more. So hit follow, hit subscribe, catch us wherever you listen to podcasts. In the meantime, go make Locked On NBA your second listen here on this Friday and on Monday as well to catch up on everything going on around the whole league. It's not just a one-team league, even though KD might make it feel that way. So catch up there, and I will talk to you all next week.